Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Oh, I will, said Harry. And they were surprised at the grin that was spreading over his face. They don't know we're not allowed to use magic at home. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, it has been so much fun doing the first season of this podcast together. And in reflecting back on how far we've come in the last year of working on this project together, I was reminded of something that we said to ourselves very early on when we were planning the Harry Potter Sacred Text class. We spent a lot of effort planning, and we got really nervous that no one would come. And you said to me, well, we need to promise ourselves that even if no one comes, we will still sit in the middle of that room and do this practice together. And what a gift that so many people have joined us in this conversation, because as much fun as it would have been just the two of us, I think one of the greatest gifts of the last year is all of the people who have become a part of this conversation. I feel like we get to be better at what we do because of all the suggestions that people offer in the voicemails and emails and on social media. And it's wonderful to know that so many folks are reading along with us. So I'm really grateful that we've already finished book one and are soon moving on to book two, The Chamber of Secrets, which is in my top three of the books. I'm mostly excited because, you know, if it had just been the two of us, no one would have known how much better I was at 30 Second Recaps. And, you know, that's one of the real gifts of being a part of a community is everybody can see my superiority. Who won? The tally was 247 votes for me and a completely respectable 203 votes for you. And now I regret all the trash talk. <laughs> I mean, it's validated. You won. But I like more than 200. I mean, I don't know who's voting, but hashtag Team Casper. Uh, um, you do know who's voting. <laughs> okay, it's mostly me. <laughs> yeah, like, let's be honest. <laughs> So this week, because we've finished reading the whole of book one, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone, we're going to do a 30-second recap of the entire book. And then we're going to draw out some particular themes and characters that we want to bring into the conversation. So, Vanessa, are you ready to time me? Good luck. Good effort. Ready? I'm so ready. I'm like adrenaline. <laughs> On your mark, 
Get set, go. Little boy called Harry Potter is born, scar on his forehead. Horrible parents, I mean, not parents, parents dead. Um, aunt and uncle are horrible. And um, he goes on a train, meets Hagrid. He's a wizard, yay! Um, tasty sweets, arrives, beautiful scenery. Um, adventures, adventures. Um, um, Halloween, troll escape, Hermione, new friend. Christmas holidays, um, adventure, Nicholas Flamel. Oh, um, um, uh, philosopher's stone. Uh, oh, trapdoor, three-headed dog. The challenge, man in the mirror, mirror gives... Stone Harry free. Yay. <laughs> okay, that was that was rough. Now you went to your you went back to your data strategy. <laughs> no, I thought this was more like a timeline. <laughs> okay. It's like a surrealist timeline. I'm either gonna do this in five seconds or four minutes. I don't know how I'm gonna do 30 seconds. Three, two, one. So there's an orphan child named Harry Potter, and he lives with his mean aunt and uncle. And then it turns out that he's a wizard. So he goes away to this wizard boarding school, and he makes some friends for the first time, and we meet Hermione Granger, and that's amazing. And then he's super nosy, so he gets pulled into this big adventure. But then it turns out that the big adventure is actually about the most evil man in the entire world, Voldemort, who killed Harry's parents. And so Harry has to struggle with Voldemort at the end of the school year, and he beats this man Quirrell, which means that he beats Voldemort, at least holds him off for a little while. Yeah, but what about Fluffy? Oh shoot, you're right. I didn't bring up Fluffy. I guess I I guess I lose. I guess I lose. I think it's better that people don't have a chance to vote for me this week. <laughs> Let's move on to something that I'm better at, which is taking the long view of the book. So we finished the whole book. Let's explore a couple of themes in detail. And I want to start with Harry, because even though he's the titular character of the book, we haven't really talked about him that much. And so I want to think about what transformation Harry goes through from the opening pages to the closing pages of book one. What strikes you as the kind of biggest change that we see in Harry? It's such a great question. This is the book in which Harry changes the most, and he changes the most just upon the news that he's a wizard, right? He has gone from being a boy who is stuck in this house where people hate him to being a boy who is loved and has magical powers and has this history. So the biggest change that Harry is going to go through, I think, I would argue, I don't know if you would agree, but in all seven books is when Hagrid comes and gives him all the information. I think you're right. It's a huge identity shift. But I do think that this is also a gradual process for Harry. It takes him time to really inhabit that identity. And we see that with, you know, his growing love for Quidditch. And that's another real moment where he feels like he belongs. And the moment where Ron and Hermione say, well, of course, we're going with you through the trapdoor. You know, he really understands that these are friends forever. So I do think that there is a sort of gradual nature that we see throughout the books. But certainly, you know, he returns to the Dursleys saying, ha ha, they don't know that I'm not allowed to use magic. You know, he is coming back with power and an agency and a sense of self, which was nearly entirely absent from those opening pages of the book. I think if we're taking a long view of Harry, what I'm realizing looking back is that we are really watching Harry in this book learn what it is like to feel love and to feel as though he is loved. And it's certainly not something Harry completes in this book. You know, I think there is a, a fundamental kind of tension for Harry throughout the story of this great self-sufficiency that he has in spades, in which he had in the opening pages of the book, you know, surviving with the Dursleys, making the most of a really difficult situation and learning to be loved, as you say, and learning to depend and trust on others. And he's made progress in book one, but there's still work to do. And we can see that 
you know, in moments of stress or challenge, that he does revert to that kind of, well, I'll do it myself. You know, I, I can't depend on others or I don't want to put anyone else at risk. So that'll be something interesting to track as we go forward. Thinking about how Harry changes in this book, I'm thinking about how his scar becomes more important in this book. We really learn that it's connected to the dreams he has and the pain he experiences when he comes face to face with Voldemort. And it seems like this has something to say about his growing vulnerability, which is ironic because he's in a place where he's training, right? He's learning how to use magic. He's becoming physically stronger. But this scar, this kind of, it's a wound in a way which keeps opening and I'm just really struck by that as a metaphor of as we grow up, we become more vulnerable. Does that strike you as something that resonates? Yeah, it really does on you know a very personal level. I think mostly the way that we talk about it now is we call it baggage, right? It's the longer that you're alive, the more sensitive points you have. I always think about it in terms of if you get a shot in your upper arm, you don't realize how often people touch your upper arm until it's sensitive. And then you're like, ow, people touch that all the time. And the longer we're alive, the more sensitive points we get. And so, you know, the more it sort of just hurts to walk through the world. And there's strength in that. You can withstand more, but the potential for pain is much higher. And so it just makes complete sense to me that his scar becomes more and more painful as his baggage accumulates. The thing that strikes me about the scar, although I don't know a lot about the religious traditions behind it, is that it's a place where we visibly see a lot of religious presentations on the body. On Ash Wednesday, we see people, you know, walking around with ashes on their forehead, or it's where um, in Hinduism, we see people representing the third eye. So the middle of the forehead, it's a place where, you know, often a parent will sort of kiss a child, you know, right on their forehead. So I wonder if it's something that we associate as a place of vulnerability and a place of sacredness. And I don't know if that's because it's sort of, you know, the front of the brain or if it's just because it's sort of, you know, your forehead is a large blank canvas on your face or what it is, but it seems like a place of reverence and place where we often offer blessings. Gosh, I hadn't thought about that, Vanessa. And it's so true, especially as that's what Harry walks around the world with so visibly. You know, he has his hair kind of hiding it, but it is, you know, it's right face on. It's it's how he engages the world is with that scar shining out. So it's something with which he's marked by and he can't really hide that. I hadn't thought about the scar like that before. That's a really, I really like that. Vanessa, who do you want to bring our attention to as we take this longer view? A unit that I am interested in looking more closely at is Fred and George Weasley. I, I think I always just thought of them as comic relief, and they are. They're hilarious. But now I look at them and see a real force for love and joy. For example, in the Quidditch chapter, when it occurs to them that Harry is in danger. Their goal is to save Harry, not to win the Quidditch match. And they are the ones who are the most loving and appreciative of the sweaters that Molly Weasley makes. So they just seem like characters who we think of as always joking and as jokesters, but they're so much more. They are the embodiment of joyful love. You're so right. For me, they've always kind of been in the background, but the way you're talking about them makes me realize that maybe because they're twins and maybe because they are forced together from 
the beginning, that they don't develop that kind of self-reliance that Harry has so much of, but that they are practicing love and generosity and friendship even throughout their childhood so that even now when they're just a couple of years older than Harry, they're able to think of how to appreciate other people or even to be courageous in ways that you know, Ron, Hermione, and Harry are still learning. They've already broken all the rules that Harry and Ron and Hermione are just learning to break now. And when Harry, Ron, and Hermione lose so many points so quickly, you know, the text even tells us even Fred and George had never lost that many points. Like, they seem to know where the line is of what one should be allowed to do and what's just beyond the line but still kind of okay. And I feel like they just get better and better at that as the books go on. And especially as we'll find that they know when it's really time to call quits when they leave Hogwarts before they graduate, which is such a radical act. But the really important question here, Casper, is now that we've had this conversation, will you admit that the Weasley twins are sexier than Oliver Wood? Oh, no. Oliver Wood is just, you know, maybe this is where the movies have ruined it for me. I'm just too geeky looking. Love the geeks but I want a strapping Quidditch player for my man. Is there anything else you want to take a long view of before we move on? So I know you're going to make fun of me for this, but I want to talk about meals. Because when we when we start, we're at the Dursleys, right? We know that Harry is, you know, hardly ever fed. He's probably malnourished. And then we arrive in this magical world. And the first thing that Hagrid does is bring his birthday cake. And, you know, then he's making sausages. And so the food is there from, from the very beginning of Harry's entry into the magical world. And then once we arrive at Hogwarts, you know, the feasts, the different celebrations around Halloween, Christmas, and then the final feast at the end of the year. Food plays such a celebratory role. And even the sweets and the candies that we learn about, I it just seems like food is kind of tracking the growing delight and learning that's happening for Harry and the gang, particularly because Flamel is on one of the chocolate frog cards. So that, that, that knowledge and food is just so tied closely together, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And one of the very first things we hear Dumbledore talk about is his love of lemon drops, which is a muggle candy. And so we learn very early on from Dumbledore's love of a certain kind of food that he's okay in the muggle world. And and then at the end, we see Dumbledore eat candy, but in a different setting. You know, there's all of that candy by Harry's bedside in the hospital wing. And as sort of a communion, a breaking of bread with Harry, even though Dumbledore admits he has this sort of like traumatic experience with Bertie Bott's Every Flavor Beans, he says to Harry, oh, I'll try one sort of for the first time in years. And says, oh, I'll take this color one because it's a safe color and tries it and then admits to Harry that he made a mistake and that even he does the wrong thing sometimes and says, oh, it's earwax flavored. And so we really see Dumbledore eating candy and having different relationships to food bookends the novel. It's also just struck me that the two times we see Dumbledore eat candy in this book, at the very beginning, it's where he's giving Harry up. And then at the very end, it's where he's like connecting with Harry again. And so Dumbledore and Harry and candy have this like very strong through line throughout this novel. The other thing I'm just realizing now is that mealtimes are the only times the entire school are together. 
right? Even during a Quidditch match, someone is probably back in the common room doing some extra homework or is just not that into sports. Thank you very much. But at mealtimes, everyone comes together and it's that way that the school opens and closes its time together. And so there's a, a sort of... I don't want to say healing experience, but nonetheless, there's a there's a moment of the whole coming together and being larger than the sum of its parts by celebrating over a meal. So I I just hadn't tracked the way that food played a role like this before. So Casper, Ariana gave us this great challenge of trying to pull one central message out of the novels and that we should each try to pull our own central message. I'm excited to hear yours. What what struck you from the novel? What message did you take away from the book? Mine is, even when it's harder together, we're stronger together. What's yours? Mine is, if he is delayed again and again, he may never return to power. I like that they're quite different. Me too, but they are both about strength, right? They're both about about power and who has it. Ooh. Okay, well, tell me, why did you choose yours? Um, so the central message that I pulled out is even when it's harder together, we're stronger together. So I don't know if this is a lot of people's experience, but growing up, I hated group projects Because basically what happens when you're on a group project is either someone's really bossy or you're the one who sort of has to step up and be bossy and no one does, no one helps with the work. And as I've gotten older, it's just been abundantly true that things move slower when you're in a group, but you always get somewhere better when you're in a group. And I feel like that is one of the central lessons that Harry has to learn over the course of the series, but that he's really learning here. And in that final adventure down in the bowels of the school, he would not have been able to do that without Ron and Hermione. And he only succeeds because they did this thing together. And I think the lesson that he's just going to have to deal with again and again is that even if it's more annoying, even if you have to get more consensus, even if you have to be more vulnerable, relationships in the end can surprise you and really sustain you and even save you. You know, throughout the book, they hate Snape. And then it turns out that Snape was actually saving Harry. So I think we just get taught again and again that relationships are what keep us alive. That's so great. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that out. What about you? Why did you pick your sentence? It just struck me so much that among the kind of wisdom bombs that Dumbledore is dropping in that final chapter, he includes this phrase, if he is delayed again and again, he may never return to power. And I thought it was just such an astute description of how bad things happen. You know, there's that famous phrase that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And of course, men here should be people and everyone. But There's just something so true in that, that, you know, the challenges that Harry is facing here with Quirrell and Voldemort is something that has happened before and will happen again. And I love that this quote also speaks to the intergenerational nature of that challenge, you know, that Harry's parents had been in that fight and Snape had been in that fight. And of course, that Dumbledore had been in his own way even before Voldemort. And it speaks to the job that all of us are called to do, you know, that we have to delay again and again the return to power of of evil in one way or another, that it's never complete. 
and that all we can do is delay. And I think we see that so concretely in how Harry and Voldemort encounter one another in that final chapter that, you know, Voldemort does escape and will come back another day, but that he has successfully delayed that return. Um, so, I, yeah, it just really spoke to me this time that I read it. The thing I also love about that is that sometimes small victories are all we can do. It's often all that we can do. But it doesn't always come down in banners and it doesn't always get shown in house colors. Sometimes it's just keeping the evil away another day. Absolutely. So, Vanessa, it's time for us to offer our blessings. And you have the whole of book one to choose a character from who you want to give a blessing to. Who is your blessing for today? First, I just want to say that it has been a challenge and a real pleasure to commit myself to only blessing women. I have seen traits in certain women and have noticed otherwise invisible women to me because of this commitment. And so it's been really fun. But I'm going to go with my obvious choice. So I'm going to bless our dear Hermione. And the reason I'm going to bless her is because I had a really profound experience with her in this book. And that was, you know, prior to the season, I had never done an Ignatian spirituality practice. And you invited us to do that practice. And so we did this um, Ignatian reading with Hermione being attacked by the troll. And prior to reading that scene as a sacred scene, I always thought that Hermione, Ron, and Harry were sort of eventually going to find out that they were all supposed to be friends anyway. It never occurred to me that it was a pivotal scene. And when we read it together, we suddenly came to the agreement, you know, through this rigorous practice that actually being attacked by the troll traumatizes and really changes Hermione. And she becomes braver because of it. And she becomes humbler because of it. And she goes in search of friends because of it. And so I just want to thank Hermione for being so wonderful that I love her so much that I wanted to pay her that attention because I think she just taught me how much sacred practices can give us. And, you know, a lesson that came from that is that you can turn something traumatic into a trigger for all sorts of wonderful things. How about you, Casper? My blessing is for Severus Snape. You know, he's a bit of a background character for most of the book, but we learn this enormous detail about him that throughout that Quidditch match that he has been counter-jinxing Quirrell, who is trying to knock Harry off his broom, and is then, you know, so adamant to protect Harry that the next game he wants to referee the match. And he's doing it not out of a place of love for Harry. It's this very complicated mix of loyalty to Lily and to try and kind of avenge James and be done with the debt that he owes him for saving his life. It's a very weird mix of complicated feelings. But what Snape is doing ultimately is saving Harry's life, is this great gift of protection, is a physical embodiment of the beautiful love that his mother and his parents had for Harry is really comes to life in Severus. And, you know, we're going to learn a lot more about Snape in the books to come. But I think we've seen here the promise of something true and something beautiful under a whole layer of, you know, bitterness and, and pain. And so I think for you know, for any of us who who are feeling bitter to to trust that just like Snape, there is something under that which which is still good and true and and which is worth loving. 
We're not doing a voicemail this episode because next week we're doing a special edition of Catching Up with Alpost. So you'll get to hear from a number of listeners who've been enjoying the show, and we'll also hear from a special guest who has meant a lot to us in helping us think through this podcast. We'll take a couple of weeks off, and then we'll be back with book two. This has been Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, produced by Ariana Nadelman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Please subscribe and review the podcast wherever you find it, and follow us on social media where you can find our handle at HP Sacred Text. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. Thank you to everyone who sent in voicemails. Thanks to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Lauren Taylor, Shane Bannon and Rufus, the Harvard Communications Office, the Humanist Hub, and the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Reading Group. See you next week. End of book one.